Good morning. I'd like to start this morning by summarizing the entire Sermon on the Mount with the wise words of a great American prophet, Mike Tyson. Surely he was commenting on the Sermon on the Mount when he said that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That sounds about right. Given what we've covered thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is speaking to a time in which everybody had a plan for what devotion and faithfulness looked like, especially the Pharisees. But then Jesus comes along and he starts swinging. And perhaps you thought you were doing pretty good when we started this series. But after just a few weeks, you've realized that your value system doesn't really line up with Jesus' value system. He uses words to describe a life of blessing with words that you would never use. And the very words that are things that you try to avoid. He talks about how those issues of anger and lust that perhaps you privatized and thought weren't a very big deal. Well, Jesus describes with words that should make us very uncomfortable. Murder and adultery. You know, one of the dangers of being churched people is that we can become so familiar with the idea of Jesus that we actually forget what he really taught. We forget how radical his teaching really was. And we forget the life that he really calls us to live. And slowly, knowledge of Jesus begins to replace actually following Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount has a mysterious way of reawakening us to what it means to truly follow after him. And today we come to a hard topic. Jesus wants to talk about divorce. There's hardly anything that I could ever preach on that's more painful than divorce. It is a deeply sensitive and difficult topic, but Jesus wants to talk about it. And so we have to talk about it. And for so many of you, divorce has been perhaps the single greatest source of pain and heartache in your life. Maybe it was watching your parents' marriage fall apart as a kid, and your whole world crumbled with it. Or maybe it was never even knowing what a happy family even looked like because mom and dad got divorced when you were so little, and you've had to figure out marriage all on your own. And yet family has always been a source of pain. For others of you, it's your own divorce that left you with deep wounds that you still carry with you. It's a source of deep grief and guilt and even shame because there's a part of you that that divorce makes you feel like you wear the scarlet letter. And so you try to keep that to yourself 
to avoid judgment from others, especially in church, where everybody's marriages are perfect. So friend, let me say this up front. There are no stones in my hands today. There is no shame that is welcome here at Redeemer Rockwall. Jesus hates divorce, but he loves the divorcee. Jesus is about new life. He's not about rubbing your face in an old one. And on the flip side, I know there's also many of you whose married life has been a wonderful blessing. And praise God for that. But I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that this passage isn't for you. It's for all those other people? No. Nothing could be further from the truth. This passage has everything to do with you, not just with your marriage, but with you personally. So here we all are. A family, a motley crew that God has brought together that represents a lot of marriages, a lot of divorces, a lot of happiness, and a lot of heartache in this room. And so what does Jesus have to say to all of us? Verse 31. Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's all he says. Jesus only says two sentences about divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, already, I know it's enough to raise all sorts of questions in your mind. And to understand what Jesus is saying, we have to understand the context and the culture into which he is speaking. Because if we don't, then what's going to happen is we will oversimplify it. We'll oversimplify what he's saying, and then we'll apply it in ways that crush people and make them feel as though they've committed an unforgivable sin, and they live outside of God's blessing and approval. And I know that that has happened to some of you. So if I'm going to be honest this morning, divorce in the Bible is very complex. Because marriage is complex. And life is complex. And so to understand what Jesus is saying, we have to do some legwork this morning to honor Jesus' words. So, stick with me. It'll all be over soon. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when Jesus said, Don't think I've come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. Your righteousness must be greater than that of the Pharisees if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember when he said that? We cannot forget that because that set the stage. Jesus is pushing back against all the interpretations of the law set forth by all of the scribes and the Pharisees. So when he's preaching to the people, he keeps, he's pushing back against all of the ways that they've heard it said unto them. And he's teaching the people the true heart of the law. 
so that their lives would be aligned with the character and nature of their God, the way that God intended. And so with these statements on divorce, Jesus is addressing very specific interpretations about what the law said about divorce. And specifically, Jesus is addressing the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Now, I'm going to read it. And just to warn you, it's confusing. And it might just make your stomach churn a little. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and if she then goes and becomes another man's wife, but that man also hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her out of his house... Then the first husband who sent her away cannot take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You're like, oh, okay, well that explains it. No. By Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought about how to explain and interpret that passage. And the question that they were trying to answer was what qualifies as a valid certificate of divorce? What were the valid reasons for a man to divorce his wife and send her out of his house? And so the conservative school of thought came from a man or a rabbi named Shimei. And Shimei said, the only valid reason to write a certificate of divorce is because of sexual immorality. On the other side, the liberal school of thought came from a rabbi named Hillel. And he read that part that says, if she no longer finds favor in his eyes because of some indecency. He read that and he interpreted it to mean anything. So, anytime a husband finds something not to his liking, then he has a valid reason for divorce. If she burned his dinner, she didn't maintain her appearance to his liking, if he found another woman more desirable, if he found out that she hated Bucky's, then Hillel said that the husband was in his rights to give her a certificate of divorce because she no longer found favor in his eyes. And you may think I'm joking. I'm totally serious. Hillel's interpretation totally allowed for a man to write a certificate of divorce for the most trivial of reasons. And by the time Jesus comes around, can you guess which interpretation had become the most dominant view of divorce in Israel and the most widely practiced? Hillel. Of course. It's the most convenient. And the Pharisees were big fanboys of Hillel and huge proponents of Hillel's interpretation. Now, you may be thinking, what about all the women 
in all this? Exactly. There's a reason Jewish men would pray, God, I thank you that you didn't make me a Gentile or a woman. Amidst all of the reasons a man could divorce his wife, Jewish law essentially provided women with zero provisions for divorce. It doesn't matter what your grievance was, how you were treated, what had been done to you. Women were essentially left with zero recourse other than to try and survive and to make the best of it. Because in this world, back then, marriage was a means of survival for women in the ancient world. Divorce meant destitution. And so here we have this culture where the dominant view in Israel just treated the woman as an accessory to the man's preference and pleasure. And it gave men all the power. Just imagine what that culture was like. Just imagine what it was like to be a woman in that culture. The fear that was always beneath the surface. So all this is the context into which Jesus is speaking. And to understand what he says, we also need to look at Matthew 19. Because he says the same exact thing there, but he just fleshes it out a little bit more because the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him to weigh in on this very debate about what constitutes a valid certificate of divorce. Divorce. So they come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Which side are you on, Rabbi? Jesus gives a marvelous answer. And he invites them into the deep end. He says, haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So what God has joined together, let no man separate. What's he doing? He's going all the way back to the garden, all the way back to creation. And he's pointing to the institution of marriage when God wed Adam and Eve together. He's passing by the Pharisees' intention for marriage, and he's going back to the beginning to God's intention for marriage. He's going back to the very first problem of creation, which was not a snake, a piece of fruit, and a tree. It was not the fall. The first problem was that Adam was lonely. It's the first thing that God says was not good. So God puts Adam to sleep. He took a rib from his side. And he created another masterpiece called woman. And when Adam woke up, he opens up his eyes. And God says, ta-da. And there, standing in front of him, is something unlike anything that he had ever seen before. And Adam says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, at last I found you. I belong to you, and you belong to me, my life for yours. Friends, those are wedding vows. 
Because when it says, therefore, a man shall hold fast to his wife, that's covenant language. There is no stronger language that the Bible could use. None. It's covenant language. That's language that expresses marriage as it was intended to be a lifelong, sacrificial, self-denying, self-giving, unbreakable union between man and woman where each says to the other, my life for yours. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Ups, downs, doesn't matter. I am yours. I will love you and no other. That's a covenant. That's marriage. Because marriage was given to be a reflection of the covenant love that God has towards his people. Where he says, I want your love between you and your spouse to be just like the love that I have for you. The Pharisees wanted Jesus' view of divorce, but Jesus gave him, them his view of marriage. Jesus doesn't answer the Pharisees on their terms. They say, whose side are you on, Jesus? And Jesus says, neither. Your question simply shows that you have completely missed it. You are far more concerned about how to break a marriage apart than about keeping one together. Because where's bone of my bone? flesh of my flesh. What happened to what God has joined together, let no man separate. Then the Pharisees say, well, yeah, but what about Moses' command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her out of the house? And they're referencing Deuteronomy 24, but Jesus keeps the blows coming. He says, Moses never commanded you to write a certificate of divorce. You completely misread the law because he wasn't commanding you. He was making a concession for you because of your hardness of heart. He's saying, he's flipping their world upside down. He's saying that in Deuteronomy 24, it was a concession of Moses where he had to set limits and bounds to divorce because Israel was so hard-hearted and so committed to divorcing one another that Moses had to capitulate and make a concession to put boundaries and limits to the damage and destruction of divorce. Why? So that Israel didn't end up looking like 2023 America. A land where no-fault divorce reigns supreme where marriage is seen as something discardable, something you can take on and put off like a seasonal jacket, where lifelong fidelity is viewed as archaic and old-fashioned. All the while, families are broken apart, lives are destroyed, hearts are shattered, victims are created, kids are used as pawns, and the word covenantal just gets replaced with the word optional. And in the end, you just have a culture where... Each one sacrifices the other on the altar of their own individualism. And what the Pharisees did was they took Moses' concession and they treated it like a command. And Jesus is saying, the way you treat marriage is exactly why Moses put the concession in place in the first place. 
because you'd much rather write a certificate than display covenant love. You Pharisees do what you always do. You so quickly run to law and you are so quick to disregard love. So if we take all of that back to Matthew 5, did you actually notice what Jesus said? He said, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. So remember, he's talking about this culture where men had all of the power and were writing these frivolous certificates of divorce that God doesn't recognize as valid. And to be clear, Jesus is not putting the scarlet letter on all these women. He's addressing the fact that in the ancient world, if she wasn't married, she had a hard time making it. Marriage was a means of survival. Divorce was a means of destitution. So Jesus is saying, it's you men who are causing your wives to commit these acts of adultery and marry another when they are still bound to you and you were still bound to them. It's on you. He's saying you are driving them into these acts of adultery. They have to remarry another in order to survive. So he is saying all those certificates of divorce that you've been writing up that blame the woman for the divorce, they just show that you walked out on your marriage a long time ago. You are the adulterer. You broke the covenant. So do you see what Jesus is doing? He's broadening the scope and definition of adultery as more than just sexual intercourse. It's the breaking of a covenant. It's the breaking of a covenant. And I know a lot of that, I know that's a lot. And the discussion on divorce can be very complex. But unfortunately, what can happen when we come to a passage like this is that we can get bogged down by only focusing on the biblical grounds for divorce. And honestly, most of the time you hear sermons on divorce, that's what happens. You come to a passage like this and it just becomes a sermon that gives a pragmatic checklist for what constitutes a biblical divorce. And I understand the impulse because these are issues that deeply affect people's lives. But at the same time, don't you see how that's just preaching a sermon that argues on the level of the Pharisees? What constitutes a divorce? Well, this constitutes a divorce. And that's the problem. Because it means that we miss what Jesus is really saying. He is not trying to establish the means for a biblical divorce. He's trying to reestablish the means of a biblical marriage. He is reorienting his people Back to a posture towards marriage that is rooted in divine, self-giving, self-sacrificing, covenantal love. He's saying, come back to that bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. The reason Jesus speaks so hard against divorce is because he wants your marriage to thrive. He's calling you into the beauty of covenant love that says, I belong to you. 
and you belong to me, my life for yours. Because that's what God says to us. That's why Jesus is speaking to all of us, not just some of us. So what does all this mean for you? How can we apply, take all this and just apply it to our lives no matter where you're at? The simplest question and the most obvious question is have you laid aside covenantal love in your marriage? Have you laid aside covenantal love? And what would it look like to lay hold of it once again? For some of you, reclaiming covenant love means embracing service and sacrifice for your spouse once again. Just the simple, beautiful acts of laying aside your own needs and your own desires and seeking their good instead of your own and treating your marriage as though it existed for your own comfort and convenience, just like the Pharisees. For others, laying hold of covenant love is recognizing that you so quickly run to law and you forget about love which means you're always blaming your spouse and pointing out their faults, expressing your displeasure. And even though you may not be actively looking to divorce, the seeds of it are still there and alive and well. Because in that you are constantly pushing your spouse away by communicating all of the ways that they have lost favor in your eyes. And love erases records of wrong. But law just looks to make it longer. For others, covenantal love needs to express itself in the form of an apology. You need to ask for forgiveness from the one to whom you belong. To say, I am so sorry that I have hurt you. Because to hurt you is to hurt my own flesh. I ask you, my love, for the intimacy of your forgiveness. Which means that others of you, you need to forgive. To say to your spouse, I want my heart to be big enough to love you, even when you have not loved me. I forgive you. For others, covenant love means you have got to get the mistresses and the muses out of your house. Whether it's pornography, romance novels, certain types of shows, fantasies, you have to rid your house of all of your lovers. For others, you need to invite Jesus back into your marriage through prayer. To pray for your spouse to ask Jesus to change them, but most of all, to change you. To ask him to change your marriage, to bring new joy, new life, new intimacy, new romance. We want white hot marriages at Redeemer Rockwall because Jesus does too. 
And regardless of how long you've been married, I encourage you all to do this. Renew your vows. Renew your vows to each other and renew that covenant that you made. If you don't have vows, I got them. I'll give them to you. Do it on a date night. Make a big deal about it. Spend a little too much money. Remarry the spouse of your youth. Or I'll do you one better. We'll do it on a Sunday morning during worship. We will renew your vows right here on this stage. And we will all celebrate with you. Because how beautiful would it be over the next year if our calendar was filled up with the rhythm of renewed wedding vows in worship. And lastly, I want to speak to a particular type of person. I wouldn't be a very good pastor if I avoided you. It's the person who's heard all of this and realizes that 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 divorce in their past doesn't really meet biblical standards. Maybe the reasons at the time where you just felt you were too young, you grew apart, you fell out of love, or maybe you just both wanted to hit the no-fault button. But either way, in the end, you realize that you walked out and you broke the covenant. And you're hearing all of this and you're sitting there thinking, man, I kind of feel like I'm wearing the scarlet letter here. What if I told you I do too? There's a scarlet letter on me. In fact, what if I said that there is a scarlet letter on every single person in here? Are we so quick to forget what Jesus said last week? Because is anyone here free of lust? Anyone here who's free of any lustful thoughts? Didn't Jesus say it was adultery whether you are married or not? Why? Because Jesus has been teaching us the deeper understanding of adultery. It's more than just a sexual act. It's the breaking of a covenant. And he's showing us that we ultimately have all failed in our covenant with God. It's why all throughout the Bible, that's the very language that God uses to describe sin. It's not just idolatry, it's adultery. That he would enter into a covenant relationship with us, but we would walk out on him all the time. We would forsake our vows and disregard his covenant love. We all wear the scarlet letter because we are all covenant breakers. So then the real question becomes, it's not am I an adulterer or not? The real question becomes, what does God do with an adulterer like me? Friend, let me tell you the gospel. Did you know that God divorced Israel? He did. Jeremiah 3. God wrote Israel a certificate of divorce and sent her out because she gave herself to so many other gods, so many other lovers, and she 
broke that covenant time and time again. But that just seems to raise all sorts of questions, doesn't it? Because where's the gospel in that? But also, how do you reconcile that with Hosea 2 that we read earlier? Where God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute of Baal. So Hosea goes and he buys Gomer off the auction block. He pays the price for her redemption and he, remar- and he marries her. This is not a Hallmark movie because Gomer runs and she runs far. She runs to every other lover she can find, forsaking their covenant over and over and over again, leaving Hosea at home to raise three little boys that probably aren't even his. And God says, Hosea, this is what it's like to be married to Israel, my bride, who has broken her covenant with me over and over again. So what does God do? He tells Hosea, I will allure Gomer, my people, out into the wilderness, and there I will speak tenderly to her. No longer will she call me my Baal. She will call me my husband. And so you think, how do you reconcile the beauty of that with a divorce certificate in Jeremiah 3? Where's the gospel in all that? Hosea 2 gives us a picture of the entire Bible story. So friend, I want to tell you the gospel as it really is. It's the greatest love story of all time. God made a covenant with humanity, his bride in the garden. He promised her himself. He gave them a home, a beautiful home. He gave them a perfect love. He gave them his relationship with her. But his bride walked out of that covenant. She ate the piece of fruit because she wished her husband dead. So God sent her out of the home into the wilderness of this world. But what did God do? He went out with her. He followed her into the wilderness of this world with a promise that he would redeem her. But then she was abducted and enslaved in bondage in Egypt and desecrated. And God saw her and found her and he rescued her and he defeated her captors. And then he took her out into the wilderness of Sinai and he spoke tenderly to her there. He made a covenant with her again and God pledged himself to his bride. But immediately she offered herself to another lover, to a golden calf. But God forgave her And he renewed his vows to her in a covenant renewal ceremony. And God brought her into the promised land and he gave her a home, a place to dwell with her. And there he renewed his vows to her again. But she kept bringing other lovers into the home. And century after century after century after century, She broke her vows time and time again, and God continued to invite her back to covenant faithfulness to him, calling his bride home to the one who loves her. But she refused to listen. 
So finally, God said, fine, I release you. I write you a certificate of divorce and I set you free. Since you are so committed to all your other lovers, I will give you what you want. I will send you out into exile among the nations so that you can live with all of those other lovers that you love so much. But even after that divorce certificate, what does God do? He still chases after her. He still follows her out into the wilderness. He follows his adulterous bride to the ends of the earth and, to con- and continues to call to her in her exile to come back home and to be with him. He keeps going out to speak tenderly to her and he says, I love you. Come home to me. There's still a place for you because my love has not grown cold. So God brings her home and he commits himself to her once again. But she turns away and she runs and she forsakes her vows all over again. So God does one final thing. One final thing to have his bride for himself. He followed after her in a different way. He followed her into the wilderness of this world in flesh and blood to find her. And when he came to her, she hated him. She wanted him dead so that she could just be left alone with her lovers. But instead of sending her out, God did something different. He said, this time I will be the one who's cut off. I will be cast out in your place. So God crawled on a cross as she mocked him and insulted him and bruised him and crushed him and tortured him. And he gave his life for his bride. And he went into exile in her place. Because that's what covenant love does. My life for yours. And when his bride saw this act of love for her, something strange happened that she had never felt before. She felt a new heart within her. Because now she finally loved him back. She said to him, no longer do I call you my Baal. I call you my husband. And to her, God said, there you are. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Finally, I found you. And you will be with me forever. No matter what you've done or what your story is, That's the covenant love that's given to you. But it's also the type of covenant love that you are called to give for the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your covenant love love that we've forsaken, love that we've forgotten about, 
I ask and pray for the marriages in this room. You know each of them. You know our marriages better than we know our marriages. Would you give us the grace and courage to submit our lives and our marriages to the one who knows them so well and knows exactly what they need? We ask that you would graciously humble us towards our spouses. We ask that you would empower us with your covenant love and that we might have just a small taste of the love for our spouse that you have for them. We ask that the marriages in our church would thrive. We ask that you would protect them. We ask that you draw them unto one another. And we ask that you would bring healing and wholeness and restoration. We ask all this in the name of Christ our Lord, whose name is so beautiful forever. And everybody said, amen.